Welcome to the RUF City Campus Podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit givetoruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We're studying the book of Exodus this semester. It's the second book of the Bible. And what, what we've said, what we've seen so far this semester is that Exodus is a true story that helps us to make sense out of our lives in this world. And what we're going to see tonight from this particular passage is that Exodus is going to help us make sense out of forgiveness. It's going to help us make sense out of forgiveness. This, is, this particular text in many ways, is very high and lofty. Uh, it is, it's a sobering passage. It can be a bit of a confusing passage, but it's also full of imagery and, and themes and theology that are carried from beginning to end in the Bible. And so in some ways, it's a very high and lofty passage. In other ways, it's, it's very uh, earthy. It's very down to earth. It's very practical. Because what it's doing is giving us tools for everyday life. It's giving us tools for dealing with and reckoning with the guilt that we find in ourselves and in other people. It's, it's giving us tools for how to live in relationship with people who, uh, who wrong us. It's giving us tools for how to navigate a, div- a diverse society where people um, don't just disagree with one another, but they see those with whom they disagree as sometimes as evil and unjust. What Exodus in chapter 12 is doing is it's actually giving us tools to navigate all of that. Because in navigating all of that, forgiveness is essential. So Exodus 12 is going to help us make sense out of forgiveness. Let's look together. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go... And select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went on and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. 
And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's pray and ask for him to help us as we study it this evening. Father in heaven, we do need your help. We need your help to make sense out of what we just read. We need your help not just to understand it, but to um, be glad in it and to be changed by it. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do just that. Would you change us by your word tonight? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the context for everything that we just read, if you weren't with us last week, is that what God is doing here in this passage is he is bringing plagues down on the house of Pharaoh, down on Egypt. Because Pharaoh is, is oppressing God's people, the Hebrew people. And, and Pharaoh is refusing to let them go. And so God is bringing plague after plague as a warning to Pharaoh. Let my people go, lest you be destroyed. And last week we looked at the first nine plagues. This is actually the tenth and final plague. And what we're going to look at tonight is three things. We're going to look at the need for forgiveness, the means of forgiveness, and the effect of that forgiveness. The need for it, the means of it, and the effect of that forgiveness. So first, the need for forgiveness. For most modern Western people, when we read a passage like this one, when we read this passage, the most pressing question is this. Why? Why did it have to be this way? Why did it have to be this violent? Why did it have to be this bloody? Why did this have to happen? Can't, can't God just forgive Pharaoh? Pharaoh can let the people go. God can forgive them. Why, why does it have to be this way? Why do people have to die? Why does blood have to be shed? We, we, as modern Western people, we tend to read this and are somewhat appalled by what's happening in this passage. But, but it's interesting to note, and I think significant, that... Um, None of the people, even if you read this passage and, and all the verses surrounding it, Exodus 11 and Exodus 13, the rest of chapter 12, the people who are experiencing this are not appalled by it. They are sad. They are heartbroken. They are grieved by it. It is, it is a sobering thing that's happening here, but they're not appalled by it. Nobody is saying, God is being so unfair. Why is God doing this? And I, I think that's important for us to note. Um, because it's not enough, it's sort of easy for us to say, well, that's because they're, you know, this was ancient times and they're primitive and we know better now. But it's not enough for us to say that. And one of the reasons it's not enough for us to say that is because uh, future generations will look upon you and me and say the same thing. They're so primitive and they didn't get it. Now, we think we get it, right? Every culture um, sees some things really clearly and is blind to other things. Every culture sees some things really clearly and is blind to others. So we th- say things in, in this day and age in America, we, we like to say you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, which is another way of saying pretty much everybody else who has lived before me is stupid and doesn't understand the way the world works the, the way that I do. It's a sort of arrogant thing to say. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history is basically saying history was wrong, but I'm right. I get it. They didn't. 
But the problem with that is there's a little bit of arrogance to think that we have figured it all out, that we've solved the riddles of the universe, that things and the things that you and I think are common sense and normal and inarguable, our great-grandchildren will look at us and be appalled. That's just the way history works. That thing, some things that we accept as normal and, and gospel truth, our great-grandchildren will look at us and think, how could they have thought that? How could they have done that? Because every generation sees certain things and is blind to other things. Every culture has this. And what that means is that even in our modern, progressive, educated context here in New York City, we have things to learn from other cultures, even and especially ancient cultures. That they actually saw things that we have a hard time seeing. And so we read this passage and we are appalled and we think, why would God do this? But they actually experienced it and they were not. They were not upset with God. Now, they were sad, of course, but they didn't seem to think that God was being unfair. And what I would like to suggest to you is that they understood something true about the universe that we actually have a hard time seeing. And that truth is this. Wrongdoing creates debt. Wrongdoing creates debt. When you do wrong, when you harm another person, you are now instantly in their debt. Think about it this way. Um, I bring my computer to work on Wednesdays, and usually my computer is back there in the back of the room somewhere. Now, let's just say one week at RUF, one of you accidentally spills a bunch of Chick-fil-A sauce all over my computer. Everything is fried. It's like I can't even recover my documents. It's toast. You are now in my debt. And there are two ways we can play this. I can make you pay or I can pay myself. But there is a real debt. And I can make you pay in a lot of ways. I can make you pay monetarily. I can make you cough up the cash so that I can buy myself a new computer. And in that way you are paying. I can make you pay physically by beating you up. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But I could. I could make you pay psychologically by excluding you or by being passive aggressive towards you or by trashing your reputation to your friends. Like I could make you pay in a lot of different ways. Or... I could pay. I could pay by buying a new computer for myself with my own money. I could pay by living without a computer and having to learn how to do life without a computer. I'm, I'm, I need it a lot. And so I, that would be a heavy price for me to pay. But either way, no matter how you look at it, somebody's got to pay. There is a real debt that has happened and that debt doesn't just disappear. Like we say, why can't God just forgive it? But the thing is, there's a real debt there. And it has to be paid. Someone has to pay the debt. And justice actually requires payment. If someone here in New York City went on a killing spree tonight, and then tomorrow they went to court and the judge was like, nah, he's probably not going to do it again. You can go free. We would say that was unjust. Justice requires payment. And that's a hard thing for us to see. You know, we read things like in the Old Testament, we read things like, and they understood this really well. We read things like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we think that sounds so cruel. Why would they do that? Why would God say to his people an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? But when you put it in context of the ancient world, other nations, other cultures, they weren't saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They were saying a life for an eye and a hand for a tooth. If you take out my eye, I'm going to kill you. If you knock out my tooth, I'm going to cut off your hand. And so God is saying, no, 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 no. There is a real payment. There is a real debt there. 
But the punishment, the debt must fit the crime. Those two things actually have to go together. Justice requires a payment. It requires a payment of debt, but the payment must fit the crime. And there's a couple of ways we figure out, okay, how do the payment and the crime fit together? And one of the ways we figure that out is by just taking stock of what the crime actually is. If I steal a piece of gum, I'm probably not going to have to do hard time for stealing a piece of gum from, a bo- from the bodega around the corner from my house. But if I steal a car, if I take a car, I'm probably going to have a bigger debt to pay. And if I take a life, I'm going to have an even bigger debt to pay, right? It depends on what the crime is. That's how we determine what the debt is. But the other factor is who the crime is against. If I assault a dog, that's bad. I shouldn't do that. But if I assault my neighbor, that's much worse. And if I assault the president of the United States or the queen of England, I'm going to be in big trouble, right? The the debt goes up depending upon who it is that the crime is against. But there is a real debt. Wrongdoing creates debt, and that debt is larger depending on the wrong, what the wrongdoing is and who it is against. And so here in Exodus chapter 12, God is calling in the debt. He's saying, listen, your crimes have been so severe and so ongoing that it requires death in order to pay the debt. Because you didn't just steal a piece of gum. You actually assaulted the God of the universe, the, the God who created you and created everything else and designed life the way it was meant to be lived. And this is what sin is. Sin is not the breaking of some arbitrary rule. Sin, sin is going against the design of the universe. Sin is saying, you know what, God? I think I'm okay. I'm going to strike out on my own. I want to live not the way that you made me to live, but I want to live by my own rules. I want to live my own way. And it's an infinite crime against an infinite God that's worthy of this infinite debt. Now, some of you are objecting to this for a number of different reasons. Some of you are objecting to this and you're saying, wait, 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 wait. I reject this entire principle. I reject your entire premise. Because I reject your rules. I don't believe in the God of the Bible. I don't believe in the rules of the God of the Bible. So I don't follow those rules. So who cares if I break those rules? And I I would like to suggest to you that um, I'm not sure it matters. Because whether you live by the code of the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule, or whether you live by some other code, let's just be relativists for a moment, right? You get to decide what is right and wrong, what is good and bad for yourself. And whatever you put on that list... If being a good person means being tolerant and hardworking and compassionate and open-minded and, and kind and thoughtful and whatever, what, however you fill that definition out, let me ask you, at the end of the day, have you lived up to your own standard? Like the things that you hold other people to, however it is that you define what is good and what is bad, have you actually met your own standard at the end of the day? Or even at the end of your life? If we were to look back over your life and the the demands that you made of other people, the demands that you made of yourself, did you actually live up to it? I think when we're being honest with ourselves, we recognize like we don't, no matter where we set the bar, it does not matter. We don't even meet our own standards for ourselves. There is a debt. It doesn't matter if you live by the Bible's code or some other code. You, you, You can't even hold up your own standard. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, but that's not me because I'm here at RUF 
and I'm doing the right thing, and I actually am trying to live by the rules that God has outlined for me. I'm actually trying to live the way that God made me to live. I am keeping the rules. I am reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm going to church. I'm being kind and respectful and humble. Listen, I'm a professional Christian. I'm an ordained minister, (laughs) and I'm not good enough. It's not good enough. That even on your best days, when you feel like you are keeping the rules perfectly and to a T, do you know why it's, well, you know why it's not good enough? Because even on your best days, you are keeping the rules because you love yourself, not because you love God. You are keeping the rules because you think, if I keep the rules, then I will get the, God will owe me the kind of life that I want. He will owe me the kind of career that I want. He will owe me the kind of spouse that I want. He will owe me the kind of happiness and comfort that I want. God will owe me the life that I want if I work hard enough. Which is deeply selfish. You're keeping the rules, but you're keeping them for all the wrong reasons. You're keeping them because you love yourself, not because you love and honor God and you trust Him. And you. There's a debt. No matter how you slice it, there's a debt. Everyone has a debt. Everyone's life is an assault on the way that God created us to live. Everyone has a need for forgiveness. Now, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that debt? What is the means of forgiveness? In a word, the means of forgiveness is substitution. Substitution. This, I think is what makes Christianity uniquely beautiful and uniquely powerful as a force for good in the world. Because every other religion says, you have to pay the debt. You have to work the debt off. You bear it. You pay it down by being a good religious adherent. You have to pray more. You have to be more sincere. You have to embody the ethics of this faith more consistently. You have to serve more. You put in the work. You pay the debt. Even if you're not a religious person, that's still the case. You have to pay the debt. You are the one who has to become a better person. You have to improve yourself. You have to be more open-minded and caring and selfish, selfless. You have to get woke and stay woke. You have to pay the debt. Nobody else can do it for you. And those things sound like good options until you realize that you just can't do it. You'll never be sincere enough. You'll never stay woke enough. Someone will always outdo you. The problems of the world will always persist. You will never be enough. And Christianity comes in and says, you can't pay the debt. Someone has to pay it for you. It's substitution. And here in this particular passage, the way that that plays itself out is that either the son dies or the lamb dies in his place. Those are the only options. You pay the debt or the lamb pays it for you. Those are the only choices. Now, again, I think our cultural blind spots get in the way of us actually seeing the beauty of this passage because we hear that and we think that is cruel. Why does the son have to die? And in particular, why can't everyone just bear their own bet, their own debt? Why does it have to be put onto the son in particular? And the reason this is the case is because in this particular culture, they, again, they saw something that we have a hard time seeing. We live in a radically individualistic culture. They, they didn't. They saw the, the, the familial fabric of the way that the world works. We think uh, in, in first name terms. We think 
about I and me and my, and they thought in last name terms. They thought about we and us. They thought about the family. Like when I, when I make a major decision about my life, I do not think about how it affects. I'm the firstborn son in my family, by the way. When I make a major decision, I am not thinking about how it affects my siblings and their children. But in that particular culture, they had to do that. If you were the firstborn son, you had to do that. Any decision that was made affected the whole family because they saw that, that everything that, we did, that they did was inextricably tied, was woven into the fabric of their family. And the reason they had to do this is because the, fa- the, the firstborn of the family uh, was the steward of all of the family's resources. That everything that the family had belonged to him. He was the keeper of the resources and the wealth of the family. Because they didn't have any 401ks. They didn't have Roth IRAs. They didn't have retirement plans in that day. Your retirement plan was your family. And the reason they didn't divide up the inheritance among all the children is because when you divide the inheritance, you decrease everyone else's chances for survival. And so everything goes to the firstborn son. And he stewards all of that wealth and all of those resources on behalf of the whole family, not just for himself, not just for his first name and his own reputation, but for the whole family. So if the firstborn son makes a good financial decision or a good farming decision or a good social decision, the whole family flourishes and prospers because of that. But if he makes a poor financial decision or a poor Uh, social decision or a poor farming decision, the whole family suffers. If he makes a shameful moral decision, the whole family suffers. It's not just his first name, it's the last name, right? It's the whole family that suffers because of that. And it works the other way as well. If someone else in the clan, if someone else in the family incurs a debt, guess who has to pay it? The firstborn son. Because he's the only one that has any of the resources and any of the money and any of the power. It all belongs to him. And so when somebody else incurs a debt, everybody knows he's got to pay it or it won't get paid. Because nobody else has the means to pay the debt. So in this particular culture, when God says either the lamb dies or a son dies, nobody bats an eye. And nobody protests. And nobody rages against God. Because they understand it was the son's responsibility to pay. It was his responsibility to pay. But what they also understood is that it was an amazing uh, amazing act of mercy on God's part to offer a substitute. Every son in Egypt, both Israelite and Egyptian, deserved to die. But none of them actually had to die. None of them had to die. God actually provides a substitute. We didn't read this tonight, but at the very beginning of Exodus chapter 12, you can go back and look at it later on this evening. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, this is going to happen. Turn back. God is going to do this. And then he gives him a whole day to change his mind. And he digs in his heels and he doesn't change. But nobody actually had to die. There was a substitute. There was a way out. If every house had the blood of a lamb on the doorpost, then every son would have lived because God provided a substitute. He said, listen, kill the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost and destruction will pass over you. I will accept the blood of the lamb. 
as a substitute. Destruction will not come on your house because destruction has fallen on the lamb instead. It's a substitute. Now, this is crucial for us to understand. Listen, in verses 24 and 25, God says, keep doing this. Keep doing this. Do this every year. Don't stop killing the lamb. Don't stop seeking safety under the blood. Why? The reason that he does this is because the debt is actually not paid. Destruction is still hanging over their heads, so to speak. And so for centuries, the Hebrew people continue to celebrate the Passover meal as a recognition of the fact that they are still deeply in need of a substitute. That they are still deeply in need to to hide, to find safety under the blood of another. And so they continue every year to celebrate this Passover meal. Jesus himself celebrates the Passover meal on the night before he dies. He's celebrating the Passover with his disciples, with his best friends. And he's the presider of the feast. So when you would celebrate the Passover, there would be a presider. Usually it was the head of the household. It was the father. And there were all these different elements to the meal. There was, a, there was bread and there was wine and there was a lamb, of course, that you would eat. And before you would eat or partake of any one of the elements of the meal, the presider would have, there were certain things that they were supposed to say to explain this is the significance of what it is that we're about to do, what it is we're about to eat and or drink. And so... On the, night when, on the night before Jesus goes to his death, he's celebrating the Passover. He is the presider of the feast. And he takes the bread, which you can read about earlier on in Exodus chapter 12. There's this thing called unleavened bread that is also part of this Passover feast, this remembrance. And the normal thing to do when you take the bread is to say this. This is bread of affliction that our fathers ate in Egypt. They were slaves and suffered in the wilderness so that we might be free. That's what you were supposed to say as you took the bread and broke it and passed it around to everyone at the table. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus breaks the bread and he says, this bread is my body, which is given for you. And the disciples, because they're all good Hebrew people, they're looking around thinking, what is Jesus talking about? Why is he saying that? And when he says, this, is my, this bread is my body, which is given for you, he's saying, look, it's not their affliction, it's my affliction. It's my suffering. That is the thing that's going to set you free. Now, what does he mean by that? Okay, so there were three main elements to this meal. There was the bread and the wine and the lamb. And we know from the accounts in the New Testament that Jesus takes the bread and he takes the wine and he, he speaks about those things and they partake of those things, but there's no lamb. There's no lamb at that particular Passover meal, which was very odd and very weird. And why is that? Why is there no lamb? Because Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the one being led into his own slaughter. It is his shed blood as the substitute. He is the lamb who is the son. He is the one who is paying the debt. He is the representative oldest brother of his own people. He is the, it's his shed blood that frees us from sin and death. He's the one who's paying the debt. So much so that when John the Baptist, in the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist meets Jesus for the first time. What does he say? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus has come to do. Every other way of life says, You pay the debt. You fix it. 
You fix what's wrong with you and what's wrong with the world. And the gospel says, Jesus pays the debt. Jesus pays the debt for you with his own blood. He's your substitute. The great theologian John Stott put it this way, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. I do it myself. I do it my own way, on my own terms, for myself. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. This is the means of forgiveness. Jesus stepping in as the lamb. Lastly, what's the effect? If if you get this forgiveness in your life, if you get under the blood of the lamb, what effect does this have on your life? I want to talk about two things and then we'll close it out. The first thing is that it brings comfort. It brings comfort. Uh, Some of you are tempted to think that it is the consistency of your faith that saves you. And this is why I think that you are wrecked with guilt a lot of the time. Because you feel like, I have done too many bad things. And I keep doing too many bad things. I'm going to run out of chances eventually. Or you feel like, I have left too much undone. I'm so guilty for all the missed opportunities or the, you know, I chose to watch Netflix instead of read my Bible or pray or, and you feel like I've left too much undone and I've done too many bad things. And, and the thought is, it's the consistency of my faith that's actually going to save me. Now, some of you aren't tempted by that. Some of you think it's the sincerity of your faith that's going to save you. And so you're worried all the time, do I believe it enough? Do I really understand it enough? Do I really mean it? How can I know that I'm saved? And so you are desperately trying to feel your way into the kingdom. And it's scary. But the beautiful thing about Passover, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it shows us that it's not the consistency of our faith that saves us. It's not the sincerity of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. It is the blood and the blood alone. Think about it this way. Some of the Israelites on the day of the Passover had their worst day ever. They did despicable things, wicked things on the day of the Passover. Some of them had their best day ever. They were loving and thoughtful and kind and selfless to all different kinds of people. Some of them laid in bed that night and listened to the carnage happening around them in Egypt. And they were terrified and they were full of doubt. Will the blood of the lamb be enough? I do not know. And some of them slept like babies. And they were fully confident. The blood of the lamb is enough. We're good. We're safe. You know what all those people had in common? They all woke up the next day. And they were all spared. And the reason is because the thing that saved them was not the sincerity of their faith or the consistency of their faith or how good their day was or how bad their day was. The thing that saved them was the blood. It was the substitute and the substitute alone that did it. I want you, if you're a Christian, I I want you to feel the comfort and the rest that comes from that. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue holiness in your life. It doesn't mean any of those things. But what it means is that you are safe and you are secure. 
not because of anything that you have done. And you are not in danger because of anything that you have done. You are safe and secure because of the blood of the Lamb, and that's it. It brings comfort. The second thing it does is it brings peace. It makes peace, both on a personal level and on a cultural level. On a personal level, the only way to become a forgiving person is to see how much you have been forgiven. It feels good to hold a grudge. It feels kind of good to be passive-aggressive with your roommates when they make you mad. It feels good to gossip about people when they make you... Like, it feels good to do that. The only way to learn how to lay that down. Like, how could I hold a grudge? How could I be passive-aggressive? How could I trash the reputation of my friend when I realize that Jesus refused to do the same for me? That at infinite cost to himself, he forgave me. He bore the cost. He took what I deserved. When that gets into your soul, it makes peace between you and those who wrong you. It makes peace on the personal level. It makes peace on the cultural level. The, the only way for us to really and truly become a just society is through the gracious love of Jesus. The only way that people who oppose one another can make peace is to see the lengths to which Jesus went to make peace with them. We live in a tough cultural moment right now where people don't just disagree with one another, they hate one another. Like, conservatives and progressives don't just disagree, they see the other side as evil and as their enemies. City dwellers and rural people don't just have different ways of life, they see the other side as being ignorant and misguided. Religious and non-religious people don't just see the world differently. They see the other side as foolish and dangerous. See, difference in so many ways in our culture, difference equals danger. And when one side gets power, they don't seek justice and flourishing for all. They just shout the other side down. And it's toxic. And the only way to interrupt that cycle is forgiveness. What could be a more powerful engine for reconciliation and for peace and for forgiveness than knowing that the God of the universe laid down his life in order to make peace with you, in order to pay your debt. The only thing that can make you into a person who forgives, who loves their enemies, and who makes peace is this. Like... You may, you may get really good at, at loving sacrificially other people, but you will get so much further. You will be propelled so much further at sacrificially, in a costly way, loving those who oppose you. If at the very center of your life, you recognize that I was God's enemy and he laid down his life for me. So how can I not do the same for my own enemies? It makes peace. Let me just give you one example of this, and then, and then we'll close it down for the evening. Keisha Thomas, 1996, Ann Arbor, Michigan. There was a KKK rally in downtown Ann Arbor. And there were 17 Klansmen who showed up and several hundred protesters. They were on different sides of the street. And at one point during the rally, one of the Klansmen leaves his own rally and begins to move towards the protesters. 
And at this particular point, you have to understand, you can go and Google this later. Google Keisha Thomas, Ann Arbor, Michigan. There are some really phenomenal photos of this event. And uh, what happens is this guy who is literally covered in the symbols of his own hatred, like swastikas tattooed on up and down his arms, Confederate flag shirts covered in the symbols of, an, of his own hatred, walking towards the people that he hates. And somebody in this crowd shouts out, kill the Nazi, and they go for him. And they descend upon him and they start to beat him until Keisha Thomas steps in. And she literally lays her body over her enemy and is taking the blows of her friend while defending her enemy. And this is what she said about this moment. She lived and he lived. She saved this man by doing this. And this is what she said. She said, I know what it means to be hurt. For the most part, people who hurt have been hurt. It's a cycle. And the only way to stop it is to absorb hurt and dole out beauty and love in response. That's amazing. The only way to stop the cycle of hurt is to dole out beauty and love in response. But here's the thing about that kind of love. You can't show that kind of love unless you have received it. You can't show that kind of love unless you have received it. And Jesus has stepped into the cycle. He has interrupted the cycle and doled out beauty and love in its place. Have you received that love from him? Are you under the blood of the lamb?